Well, good morning once more. Please turn with me in your copy of the Scripture to 1 John. As we continue on in our series here, I forgot to mention uh, that we do have a fellowship meal after this service. That was my oversight in making the announcements. We don't generally just have tables back there for the aesthetics. Um, we're going to have food. If you're, if you're coming through, uh, please feel free to stay with us uh, after the service. We would love to uh, share a meal together. Well, uh, like I said, please open with me to First John. We'll be looking at what seems to be an odd section in terms of how it's cut up and the way your Bible is probably formatted. First John two twenty nine through chapter three verse three. I'm going to start with verse twenty eight, uh, but but our text, properly speaking, as we discussed that last week, we'll start in twenty nine. This is what John writes. And now, little children, verse 28, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. The main point here is very clear that those who are born of God reflect godliness. Those who are born of God reflect godliness. It's not entirely clear whether verse 28 is the end of the last section or the beginning of this section. I certainly uh, included it in our time together last week. Uh, but everyone agrees that this chapter break is very odd, and in, it, probably the way you look down at your text of Scripture, it even looks like, why is that a chapter break? Not a good break. Uh, but everyone agrees, there's broad, I say everyone, there's broad agreement that verse 29 does in fact start a new thought unit, and it introduces a new theme which is going to play <laughs> an abiding role, you might say, in the rest of this letter. John phrases verse 29 conditionally. He phrases it conditionally. But he assumes the answer is affirmative. He says, If you know that he is righteous, if you know that he is righteous, well, he's saying something like, If you know that he is righteous, and of course he is, and you do know that, and so therefore I'm talking to you. That, that's what he's saying. He might as well be saying the rhetorical effect is, we know that he is righteous. You know that he is righteous. We all know that he is righteous. He tells him this, if you know that, then you can actually know something else. In fact, you can be sure of something else. You can be certain of something else. You can know that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him has been born of the Father. That's what he says you can know. If you know God is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And with one clause 
an enormously central concept in John's theology thunders into this letter. Thunders into this letter. With no introduction, I mean just bam, this huge concept in Johannine theology. Those familiar with John more generally probably realize this. We, we heard it in the scripture reading. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born. Well, of course they were born. How can you? Oh, no, but they were not born of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And you may recall this same language in Jesus' conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. Remember that? John chapter 3. Nicodemus, a teacher, comes to Jesus in the night. It's worth reading through. He says... Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And after pausing and staring, I'm certain, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, parallel being born of God, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born is the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't let that marvel you. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Being born of God. The same theme occurs four other times in 1 John. This theme is here to stay. And, and the significance, the implications for being born of God, having a new birth, that they're hard to overstate. It's hard to overstate. It explains why we are fundamentally different than the rest of the world. It explains why they can't know us. It explains why uh, we can practice righteousness. It explains why we should purify ourselves. It does all that explanatory heavy lifting and all of those things that we see right here in this text. Being born of God. It, it's it's the, the idea of a new birth. I can't think of a more dramatic way to describe the identity-changing, course-of-life-altering encounter with God that a person can have. I can't... I, I mean... It's a new identity, a new father. You had a crummy father, you had a deadbeat dad, an absentee dad, new father. New family, new mission, new purpose, new inheritance. The, the, new, we, the new birth isn't, this being born of God is not a facelift on an old life. It is becoming a different kind of person. Your status changes. Your heart changes. Expectations change. The promises change. Everything changes. We are the produce. We are the offspring of God. We are the source. He is our source, that is to say. And now, if you know that, if you know that, if you know, and you know that God is righteous, you can understand the point John is making here. It's this. What John's saying in verse 29 is, hey, I can look out. And I can see people practicing righteousness. 
You know what I can say? I know who your father is. You look like him. There's some, some pretty serious family resemblance going on there. That's what John's saying. You actually look like his firstborn son, too. I can tell. Because you're practicing righteousness. And those who practice righteousness are born of the one who's righteous. I know your dad. Listen to this one beautiful explanation from a pastoral scholar. He says, one of the loveliest of God's providences is that we cannot choose who gave birth to us. We owe so much to them in every aspect of makeup. And we might often be tempted to wish that things were other than they are. The nose a little shorter, the temper a little longer, the frame a little higher. But the fact of the matter is that we cannot avoid being like them. Likeness is the proof of the relationship. And so the only explanation for righteous action, at least right here, the way John is setting it up, the one explanation is being born of the righteous one. Being born again. And when you're born to a father, what does that make you? What does that make you? Everyone who was born has a father. Some have multiple fathers. See what kind of love the father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. Some translations here have lavished instead of given. Because John is trying to call attention to this incredible, uh, this this, this, this is really, there's not even words to describe how amazing this expression of love is. What, what he's saying is, do you want a demonstration? Do you want this unassailable evidence that God loves us? We're called children of God. That's the evidence. Can you believe that? That's what he's saying. Children of God. That's our status. That's our title. That's our name. He says, you are, we are called children of God. And guess what? It's not just anyone doing the calling here. The person who's calling us children of God is not Jim Bob down the road. This person is an infallible, impeccable caller, impeccable designator. And so when he calls us children of God, reality follows. If he says you're a child of God, what you say about yourself actually doesn't matter. When he tells you this is your status, whatever status you speak over your life, sorry, child of God, born of God. And so we are, he says. Children of the God of the universe, exhibit A. Exhibit A for the love God has poured out on those who have been born. And yet, there is a flip side to this. It's the second part of the verse. There's a flip side to being born of God and being His children as a result. What's that flip side? The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. And after hearing this in John 1, that makes sense. Right? Because what does it say? Jesus was in the world... And yet, the world did not know him. What do you mean? They didn't know his name? They didn't know who his parents were? They didn't know facts about them? They didn't know that they existed? No, that's not it. 
He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It's not just knowing facts about. They did not receive who he was. And so similarly, those who are united to Christ, the world is not going to receive us because they didn't receive him. They are not, the world's not going to know us because it did not know them. It doesn't mean that they won't know our names or interact with us or know facts about us, but they're not going to receive us. And I would suggest that this, un, this understanding, this fundamentally understanding that the world will not receive Christians because they are born of God accounts for so much talking past that happens on issues of things like social ethics. I mean, it's not that there's no ability to find common ground with everyone. There's natural revelation. There's, there's, you, you don't have to be a Christian to believe that murder is wrong or something like that. I think you have to have the Christian worldview to explain why murder is wrong, but you can still believe that it's wrong. There's, God has revealed himself in nature and conscience. Here's some common points for reasoning, but here's the thing. Once you go past those kind of superficial commonalities, we are quite literally worlds apart. Literally worlds apart, belonging to a different world, destined for a different world. I mean, you look at the motivations, hopes, consequences, identity, mission for someone who is born of God and someone who is of the world. And it's like two ships. It's not even like two ships passing in the night. It's like someone... Uh, on, a, on a canoe and a jet ski, passing each other in the night in the middle of the ocean, both staring at each other, wondering, what on earth is that person doing in that at this time? There's like, there's not even like, there's like failure to start even. There's just, what? There's going to be a, a level of talking past that is going to be inevitable, and it is entrenched. And this is so important to realize because. We have to guard ourselves for thinking the following. That if we can just package what we believe the right way, if we can say it tactfully enough, and love well and do these things, that the world will in fact receive us. They might disagree, but they'll receive us. They will accept us, but even if they disagree. Folks, I'm really sorry to say, but that didn't even work if... if, if the last four years have been any indication that hasn't even happened in the church. It doesn't. Ask any pastor. People have difficulty within the church disagreeing with other Christians on certain social political issues and yet embracing them fully and vibrantly and brothers and sisters in Christ. It's like, oh no, we're going to agree, disagree, and keep each other's at arm length. Why do you think it'd be any different with the world? Do you think there's a better chance of the world receiving you if you package things the right way? Come on, get out of here. You will not be able to package a robust Christian theology that's not some watered-down gospel, some watered-down Christian ethic, no matter how clever you are or how wise you are, in a way that the world will receive you. It's not going to happen. And I'm, I'm the first proponent of speaking and engaging wisefully and tactfully and being a nuanced person I'm all there. I'm there for all of it. The mistake is thinking that if you do that well enough, people won't still hate you. Because they will. Because they don't know you. Just like they didn't receive Christ, they will not receive you. And they will not agree to disagree and receive you. They won't receive you. They won't just not receive your ideas. They won't receive you. We can't pageant up. They, we are born of God. They aren't. They aren't. Children of God, children of the evil one. 
John's binary is very clear. Who's in, who's out? Light, darkness, us, the world. I'm not saying that's a battle plan for everyone to take up spiritual arms and go have a revolution. What I'm saying is there are two distinct categories and there's no express lane. And you cannot package things enough where you will not be rejected. They don't, they don't know us because they, they didn't know him. How, why would we expect anything different? That present tense there, children, is very, very important. It's very important. First part of verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. Now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So once more, to the shock of nobody, John gives us another already not yet concept as part of his inaugurated eschatology, the end that is getting backed up into the present. Are you a child of God? Yes, now. You are genuinely a bona fide child of God if you've been born again. Now, that's what it says, now. You won't ever be more of a child of God. Okay? Just like your children won't ever be more your children, you won't ever become more of a child of God. You are genuinely a child of God. And our experience of children of being children of God now is radically different from what it will be then. We won't be more children, but the fullness of what it means for us to be children and our experience of that will be dramatically different when He appears. Which reminds us back verse 28, where we saw that word associated with the other word, parousia, for His coming. This final coming of Christ. This final visitation of Christ. When that happens, John reminds himself of something that they already knew. That they already knew. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. I remember, as I was putting this sermon together, I just got to this verse and I just thought, can this be more than a fairy tale? To... We're going to be like Him. We're going to see Him as He is. What? We're already children. You're telling me there's, there's more to the story? I mean, what, is, what could this even mean? The immediate context certainly suggests that one of the primary aspects, the ways in which we're going to be like Him, is, is, is purity and His righteousness that one day we, we won't struggle with envy or pride or lust or greed or sinful doubt or whatever the case may be. And yet, there is a reason behind that. Okay, that's the effect. That's the result. But what accounts for that effect? What accounts for that re result? I've already hinted at it from the second scripture reading in 2 Corinthians 3. As we behold the glory of the Lord... 
We are transformed from one degree of glory to another. This is the engine of sanctification. Beholding is becoming. Beholding is becoming. And one day that train pulls into the final station at the end of the track and we will be utterly and completely transformed. We will be transformed by the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead who will work in our bodies to do exactly what He did with the body of Christ. We will be delivered from this body of death to use Paul's language. Finally, we will be glorious. We will be like Him. And we will see Him as He is. Now, when I see verses like that, we'll see Him as He is. I get scared preaching a verse like that. Because it seems like almost anything you say ends up being a heresy. What does that mean? I'm going to see Him as He is. He who dwells in unapproachable light, immaterial. I'm going to see Him as He is. I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I'm going to know Him as I'm known. How? I, I understand the words that I understand those words, but I I can't grasp that reality. I, it's too great. It, 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 I cannot even understand it without saying something that I would go, no, that can't be it. No, that can't be it. But here's the thing: it's got to mean something, and it's got to mean something amazing. It's got to mean something more glorious than any of us can can put together in our minds. That we'll see Him. We will behold Him. And then as a result, we shall be like Him. Because we'll see Him as He is. And the engine of sanctification, this beholding is becoming, will be complete. We will be righteous. Not just declared righteous, but actually righteous. Not just declared righteous, but actually righteous. And that just isn't a beautiful thought. It, it is that. It is that. But that changes the way we live now. Changes the way we live now, doesn't it? Everyone, everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies Himself as He is pure. The, the, the thus hopes in Him Odd language for saying the, the person who hopes in him in this manner, in this way, who has this kind of hope that we just outlined. The hope for his, his final appearing and what will, what will be the results of that. Hope, he says, everyone who thus hopes important to point out that hope in the New Testament, and certainly here, isn't some kind of qualifier for a degree of uncertainty. That's how we use the word, isn't it? I hope it doesn't rain. hope I don't lose in this investment. hope I don't get sick over the weekend. That's, that's, how we, that, that's not what hope means theologically. The only reason this is considered hope is because it hasn't been realized yet. It's because it hasn't been realized yet. Hope is, is trusting in the fulfillment of promises not yet experienced. It's forward-looking faith. Forward-looking faith. 
It's really just a specimen of faith, a subcategory of faith. I can have faith that there is currently a God because I can't see him. I hope that Christ will return, not meaning I could be wrong, but just that that actually hasn't happened yet. God currently exists. See the difference? Future-oriented faith, trusting that something is going to happen because of what has happened. Anything else is just wishing. Anything else is just wishing. John doesn't say whoever has who wishes has wishes about these things. No, no, no. We're not doing the Christian life based off, off, off wishing. It's a guaranteed certainty. We have certainty. We can know these things. And therefore, because we can know them with certainty, we have hope. That's how that works. That's how that works. It's not ungrounded optimism. One theologian calls it hoptimism. I like that. Hoptimism. Believing things will work out well because you have really good reason to believe it. John is saying that someone who has this hope in front of them, someone who is righteous, someone who is pure, that they are going to act in a certain way now. They are going to purify themselves as he is pure. Let me give you an illustration to try to bring the this concept into better focus. Um, I've watched some of the medical TV shows, right? Grey's Anatomy. I don't know any other ones. Was Scrubs one? But, um, and, I, and I, so my illustration depends on those, some of those depictions being accurate. If not, someone tell me afterwards. You'll still get it though. There's an incredible process of the surgeon getting ready to do surgery. Because you know that OR and those utensils and the, and the bed and all the rest of it? You know what it is? It's sanitized, isn't it? It's perfectly sanitized. So that surgeon steps out of his car, walks into the hospital. And then what I've at least seen depicted, and I imagine it at least a dim approximation of reality, is this intensive process where this surgeon getting ready to go in there, I mean, they've got people who are holding his gloves open and he's got, he's like scrubbing it under his finger. And I mean, it's like a three minute hand washing and maybe sanitizer solution. And he's like triple masked up. And then these big gloves and there's this big process. There's this big sanitizing process. Why? Because where he's headed to is sanitized. The process aligns with the destination. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. The process aligns with the, with the quality of the destination. The righteousness that characterizes the full end, therefore, characterizes the process toward that end. That's what John's saying. You have a hope of encountering a pure God. Seeing Him like He is, you know what you do? You purify yourself now. Children with this dazzling hope purify themselves from wickedness just as he is pure. And to be very clear, purification here, it's a, it's a, a present active indicative word in the Greek. It's something that is continuous. It's not like, well, I got purified in Christ because I was forgiven of my sins. You were positionally sanctified, yes, understood. But this is something that we have to keep doing. And we do it on the basis of the purifying blood of Christ outlined in chapter 1. We already covered that. 
And that confess, if we confess our sins, also present active indicative, things that are ongoing in the Christian life as we continually rid ourselves from sin. So even right here, both ideas of sinless perfection and just license for sin are thrown out. Obviously, if we're being called to purify ourselves in some kind of continuing abiding way, then that presupposes a struggle and fight against sin, or that wouldn't make, our, that wouldn't make any sense. Purify yourself from what? Okay? Presupposes that they're going to be sin, but at the same time, it presupposes that those who are born of God will be fighting sin and not saying, hey, I'm going to sin so that grace abounds. Woo! That's not it. John reminds his audience to become like who they've been called to be, who they've been declared to be, and who they one day will be in its fullness. Those who are born of God reflect godliness as they are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Now, that is a mind-boggling truth. That is to say, the, the idea of living as children. And so I want to take a little bit of time to tease this out. Living as children of God. For a variety of reasons, including some of our own personal circumstances. This idea of being a child of God, sons and daughters of God. It oftentimes just seems too spiritual and abstract to really accept, to really wash over our souls like it should, like it should, and not just be a piece of theology. So much so, listen to one pastor commenting on this reality that he's seen. He says, There are many Christians who cannot really accept this lavish love of God for them personally. They're always trying to be good enough to persuade God to love them rather than accepting the fact that He already does. They embark on a ceaseless treadmill of Christian activity, always trying to prove to themselves and others that their grades are good enough to pass with God. If we put in sufficient effort, surely He must bless us. We think, but actually we pervert the grace of God into a religion of works and what should be a delight becomes first a duty and then drudgery. God's grace is not conditioned by whether or not we have scored B plus for our Christian lives this week. He lavishes love on all his children. And some of you need to hear that. Some of you blew it this week in your parenting. Some of you blew it this week interacting with your spouse. Some of you blew it this week interacting with a colleague at work. Some of you failed on the internet this week. And if you've done that, then you have an opportunity to purify yourself, confess your sins, and there's great news. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There's that hope. And none of that changes God's personal love for you as His child. None of it changes. Any more than one of your children sinning causes them to be less one of your children. Or causes you to love them more because they obey. Now they might be more pleasant to be around when they're obeying. 
But unless you have a perverted understanding of love yourself, your love of your children isn't conditioned on their performance for you, and God's love for his children isn't either. We are loved lavishly. You are loved lavishly by a father, by a heavenly father. And so let that wash over you, child of God. Second is called to purity. That's what children of God are. They're called to purity. Notice how I have unwavering in this first point and not unconditionally. You know why? Because God's love for you is not, is not unconditional. It's not. It's very conditional. It's just that Jesus met the condition for you. Okay? Do you know what the condition was? Perfection. Perfection. God's love for you is very conditional. It's conditional on the love he has for his son, Jesus Christ. That's, that sounds like pretty conditional love to me. Now, he's, oh, Tyler, got me. You got me. Okay, but once we're in Christ, it's unconditional. Fair enough, but sounds like unwavering is a better option. Having the Son of God become flesh to die on a cross and suffer the wrath of God as someone accursed doesn't sound like no condition. It sounds like a huge condition that Christ met in love. So I'm saying unconditional love of God, I would say, is a distorted understanding. However, because we are united to Christ who has met that condition, God loves us unwaveringly, and we are called to purity. Because we are loved unwaveringly, God will continue to hold us fast. We have this hope of encountering His righteousness and seeing Him as He is. And thus, we purify ourselves. Someone who is not walking in holiness is not walking towards an encounter with the Holy One. We say we're not. Someone who is not walking in holiness is not walking towards an encounter with the Holy One because the the, the process is characterized by the same quality as the end. They might be walking towards something or someone or whatever, but they're not walking towards an encounter with the Holy One. No matter what they say, no matter what they profess, no matter what they claim, verse 3 isn't optional. It's not good Christian best practice. So the question is simple. Where are you struggling to walk in holiness? Where is it? That's an easy question for a lot of people. The second one is more difficult. What are you going to go do about it? We can't be professionals at identifying sin and not doing anything about it. Can't have that. Purify yourselves. It's an active verb. So what are you going to what areas? What are you going to do? Who are you going to share your struggle with? What steps are you going to take? What are you going to do? Don't make excuses. Grace-driven, gospel-fueled effort towards holiness. This isn't legalism. This is pressing into the purity of Christ and purity of the Father. Let me get some of you, though. You know, some of you have walked with the Lord for a long time, and in humble, sober-minded self-reflection, you might say there aren't any glaring areas of sin. Okay, and I'm giving some of you permission because you've walked with the Lord you're more, to say, yeah, okay, there are no glaring areas of sin. I'm still a sinner. And I would say this. Let me offer you a, a concrete challenge. 
What is one small thing that you can commit to changing in your thought life this week toward the end of purity? And I don't mind thought life toward the end of purity. I don't necessarily mean lust. I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe you're someone who tends to look around and have little visual treats here and there. Maybe you say, okay, I need to, I'm going to tally that up. I've actually done that seven or eight years ago. I actually did that myself. I tallied that up. It was very helpful for making sure I got a low tally. That's how you move the needle in sanctification. Do you take concrete action steps? Maybe it is. Maybe it's taking a second look or a third look or whatever at a man or a woman. Maybe you say, well, I'm going um, to really notate my internal grumbling. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to notate my internal grumbling. Maybe I'm going to pull out my phone. I'm going to just put a tally mark in a notes app or something. When I'm grumbling internally, that's what I'm going to do. Maybe it's just my low-grade resentment. I don't feel appreciated around here. Look at all, I do. Look at all I'm doing. Look at all this person isn't doing. Ugh. I silently grumble. Maybe you tally that up. Maybe it's one small way in which you're lazy, where you're not exercising. You know what? Here's, here's my dirty fork. Here's the sink. Here's the dishwasher. Sink. Dishwasher. Sink. Dishwasher. But it's, the dishwasher is so far down there. And you have to open it, and you've got to reach down and put the fork in sink option. Now, folks, I'm not telling you that that's sin, that you're necessarily putting your fork in the, in the sink. I've pivoted to cleaning strategies. I dump it all in the sink and clean it all after dinner. Okay? But my point is that those you, you, you might not have some glaring whatever in your life, but where are the little moments, where are the tiny little moments where your fear of man or your laziness or your lust or your envy of what other people have creeps in? It wouldn't be identifiable from the outside. That's why it's a small concrete challenge. Just change one. And don't try to do all the things. You try to do fix everything, you won't fix anything. What, just pick one small little area in your thought life that you can improve, that you can focus on, and then Think about how to improve this week. It's my challenge to you, especially if you've been walking with the Lord for a long time. Finally, and I'm glad we're leaving it with this one, because some of you need to hear this one as well. You are keep capable of pleasing God. You are. You are truly capable of pleasing God. You know, there is so much, especially in our, some of our reformed circles, you know, total depravity, all the rest of it. There is just so much talk of being this wretched sinner who just can't ever do anything right. And uh, you're just a worm who needs to die or something. And um, you can lose sight of the fact that, no, you're a child of God who can please your father. Just like your children can please you. Just like that. God is not always rolling his eyes at you. and Wondering how you got in. There is a strange comfort that I take toward this end in reading First and Second Kings, by the way. And, and the most of there's very little comfort in the horrible examples of most of the kings. There's only five good ones. They're all from the southern kingdom. But I think of someone like Hezekiah. Hezekiah, he, he was bold. He, he did many good things. But he also did some very foolish and selfish things like letting foreign envoys from Babylon go into the temple and check out all the treasure in the house of the Lord, which caused Isaiah to say, all this stuff and all your people is getting carried off to Babylon. 
And you know the last words of Hezekiah? He said, well, this is a good word. At least I'll have peace and security in my days. That was the last words of Hezekiah. Next chapter. But you know what the Bible says about Hezekiah? You know what it says? Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that David, his father, had done, he removed the high places and broke the pillars down and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel made offerings to it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him of all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. He held fast to the Lord. What? How are those two things compatible? They are. They are. You can live a life that can be so described, even if you are in fact a sinner. Listen to Amaziah. He, Amaziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father, uh, Amaziah, Ahaziah, sorry, Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, or what's the but? He did what was right. Nevertheless, the high places weren't taken away. What? These places of idolatry weren't taken away? The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And the Lord, not only that, the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death and he lived in a separate house. You know how he's described? He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all the ways of his father. Now why do I get this bizarre encouragement from that? It's because in the New Testament, that reality that you can genuinely live a life that is pleasing to God didn't somehow disappear just because we, in addition to being able to live a righteous life, were declared perfectly righteous in Jesus. It's a both and. It's not either or. Because you've been declared righteous, you live righteously. You can genuinely have. Do, do you want these things to be spoken over you? Don't you want someone to look in and say something like this hypothetically? And so and so, whoever you are, plug in your name, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and they were faithful, and they were this and that. And you're like, oh, but what about this? What about this horrible error I made? What about this person I betrayed? What about my struggle with pornography? Well, what about the way I do this and this and this? Surely those disqualify me from any, from any designation that I lived rightly before the Lord. And I'm suggesting to you that this all-or-nothing reasoning and in, in, in thinking about this is misguided. You are not saved by any of those things. You are saved on the merit of Jesus Christ. But you can, in fact, live a genuinely righteous life. Not perfectly righteous. Genuinely righteous life that is genuinely pleasing to God. We see this in the New Testament. Walking in love is called a fragrant offering to God. We're to offer our whole lives as living sacrifices, pleasing to God, even as Paul considers his own ministry a drink offering being poured out, which is an offering, the Old Testament, uh, uh, a kind of offering is associated with a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. So we are God's children. And just as it's possible for your children to please you, it's possible for you to genuinely please God, even though that's not why He loves you.
We've got to hold that intention. And so I leave you with this from J.C. Ryle. He says, just as a parent is pleased with the efforts of his little child to please him, though it, only, though it be only by picking a daisy or walking across a room, so is our Heavenly Father pleased with the poor performances of his believing children. If you're a child of God, you are loved lavishly, called to purity, and you are capable of pleasing the Father. So live in those truths, walk in those truths this week. Let's pray. God, how great is this love that you have given to us that we could be called sons and daughters of God, and so we are. Lord, I pray that those for whom this is simply a, kind of a Christian slogan, children of God, would be challenged to think about how this defines their identity and shapes their actions as we purify ourselves as you are pure. Lord, we praise you for a new identity, for being part of a new family, for restoration from redemption and being born again. Would you impart to us wisdom and grace as we seek to press these truths into our heart as we become what we have been declared to be. In Jesus' name.